The most cost-effective uh, way to raise money is with major gifts. It's in fact to simply ask one donor to give what you might normally raise annually, okay, and to give that gift annually. It's the most cost-effective way of doing it, but interestingly, most small charities don't do that. Starting point, however, is to find a case for support that will attract those major donors. Unsurprisingly, it's actually to be able to demonstrate that as a small charity in a niche market, you can deliver <clears throat> impact in a way that really is is quite unique and special. You're listening to Small But Mighty, the podcast of the Small Nonprofits Alliance, the online hub for Australia's small charities. Hey everyone, I'm Bianca Crocker, founder and CEO of the Small Nonprofits Alliance. I'm here on the lands of the Wurundjeri people, the place where I grew up and now live and work. And I'd like to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which you reside also today. Today on Small But Mighty, I'm joined by Peter Dalton. Peter is a founding partner of DGB Group, a campaigns agency working to help transform for-purpose organisations. He has more than 30 years experience working in the fundraising world and among many other successful campaigns, both in Australia and globally, Peter led the well-known Olivia Newton-John Cancer Wellness Centre campaign at the Austin Hospital here in Melbourne. He has served in many voluntary positions during his career, including as the chair of the FIA National Board, and in 2016 was awarded the Arthur Venn Lifetime Achievement Award for his outstanding contribution to our sector. Peter has been a huge influence in the Australian non-profit sector, and for me personally as well. I'm really privileged to be able to work with him so closely in my role as a partner and director at DGB Group also. In addition to all of this, Peter has authored two books about fundraising. His most recent, Giving Hope, is about the four-purpose organisation's quest for success. And Peter is here today to talk to me about that book. Hi, Peter. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Bianca. It's great to be here. So we've got so much to talk about. Um, most of it, or a lot of it, is actually focused around your book, Giving Hope. Uh, but the first question that I'd love to you to talk about, I guess, and, uh, you know, share with our audience is obviously a lot of us know about your work um, with the Olivia Newton-John Wellness Centre or even Cambridge University Hospitals in the UK. Can you share with us a little bit about your experience with smaller charities? Sure. So it was a a long career to get to those big two campaigns and uh, so I had to burn a lot of bridges along the way, including a lot of small organisations. And it's interesting now that um, at uh, DGB Group, uh, we often take a punt on a small organisation that has sometimes no staff at all, but what they do have is a really urgent and compelling case. They want to make a difference. They can change the world. So what we do, we take a, take a punt on them and say, look, this is something that's awesome. So a small organisation that's really fulfilling an urgent need, you can apply all the usual fundraising best practice things to to have a result. The challenge always is the capacity within the smaller organisation to deliver on it. Um, 
So interestingly as well, I've been a chair of a number of um, uh, charities or at least on the board of them. I was chair of a a really small uh, charity called Outback Spirit Foundation that works with Indigenous growers of Australian bush tucker, which is a a fabulous thing to do. But, you know, a small organisation that had, you know, very small brand presence we were only able to to afford a CEO at a point point five position, and that was it. So it was really the board of the volunteers, including myself, that were doing all the heavy lifting in terms of of the fundraising and engagement in that, which was really important. So, yeah, I've, I've done quite a bit of that. Mm. Yeah, it is really tricky in those smaller organisations. I know when I was on the board of Indigo Foundation, a small organisation, only about half a million turnover, we were fortunate to have a, a couple of staff, but still a really small, small committed group of people. But the, the board um, definitely in that organisation, you know, needs to do a lot of sort of hands-on work rather than just being in the governance space. So, and I, and I hear a lot from our members and listeners a lot of the time that are in these small charities that they do rely a lot on the support of their you know, their trustees or their board of directors or committee of management. So it is really interesting. Um, having worked with some obviously really incredible and large organisations and some smaller ones, um, like you've just mentioned, what are some of the strengths that you see in small charities generally? So this is a, a really interesting question which I've been thinking about in doing the podcast. And in my first book, which is not giving hope, it was really written for the smaller organisations. And the proposition I was putting there was that when you're starting up in terms of your fundraising program, most most small charities start off by acquiring donors, small donors and regular donors, peer-to-peer, peer-to-peer special events, donor acquisition, those sorts of things, just to get some, some cash flow coming in and building up, albeit even a small database. Um, so I have worked very much uh, in my career on major gifts. So there is a, a different way in which you can you know, even for a startup or for a small <clears throat> small charity, a different way you can approach it. We're going to talk about, I think, cost ratio in a moment. And the most cost-effective uh, way to raise money is with major gifts. It's, in fact, to simply ask one donor to give what you might normally raise annually, okay, and to give that gift annually. It's the most cost-effective way of doing it. But interestingly, most small charities don't do that. The starting point, however, is to find a case for support that will attract those major donors. So this is about thinking about where you need to spend your time most productively in terms of your fundraising program. And unsurprisingly, it's actually to... to to be able to demonstrate that as a small charity in a niche market, you can deliver <clears throat> impact in a way that really is is quite unique and special. And you need to develop a case for support for that, which talks in the language and which will resonate with a major donor, which is a very different market, a different type of uh, language and communication that you use with the the normal peer-to-peer or forms of donor acquisition that you use. 
So if you start off the point of, of almost asking amongst that small charities network, you know, the first question I would typically ask, and I did this at Outback Spirit Foundation, was who is the wealthiest person who's already connected to the cause? We know that they're passionate about it, and we, we have a look at them. What are they giving to other causes? Let's not only present them with a case, let's go to them and ask the question, can you work with us to, de to develop, you know, how can we do better at what we're doing? So you start engaging and you start getting involved with them. And then as a result of that, you sort of unpack it all and they begin to realise, well, this is great. Yeah, you're doing something really special and unique in this, this niche market. Um, the problem is you, you have no money to, no program money to actually deliver on it. So the penny drops and you ask them, hey, can you give us a hand with that to get the kickstart going? And if you start that way, it's the most cost-effective way you do. Then there's another super benefit that occurs. When you get a major donor who's involved and is then committed to your cause, and they're committed financially as well as emotionally and personally. They are the ideal person to invite onto the board of that small charity. And how do they shake up the other board members? <laughs> Fantastic to see. Absolutely. I, I think it's really interesting what you're what you've talked about there, like the strengths in small charities around the way that they can work really uniquely and closely with their cohort, whether it's a local community or a sp specific target audience or a specific small group of beneficiaries. So they've got that strength there, but but some of the challenges about really harnessing how they articulate that strength, share it with their community, or more importantly, a small number of their community who can potentially become those major donors. And working in that major donor space, I think you're, you're spot on. We've got a couple of resources in the Small Nonprofit Alliance about major donors, but um, a lot of what we get asked for is stuff around peer-to-peer -peer or online and, you know, all of that sort of lower level, um, you know, when we think about the donor pyramid, all of that lower level activity. Um, but I, I think you're so right in saying that that cost-effective way of really doing some fundraising at that higher level and really trying to build some strong relationships with potential major donors is a great opportunity um, for, for uh, small charities in particular. Thank you. Um, so now thinking a bit more specifically about your book, your latest book, Giving Hope, it talks about um, a, a, a giving hope DNA can you tell us a little bit more about this concept and how it connects to fundraising? I find this really quite fascinating, this part. So all for-purpose organisations, as I prefer to call them, um, are started for the very reason they need to give hope. There is some need that is unfulfilled and it is usually a need that people um, actually want to run from. So the, the notion of giving hope is is based on a bit of research that identifies in the brain we have this thing that they identify, they call it the trait hope. And it's sort of based on the, the old fight and flight pattern. When, when you're scared and something confronts you, suddenly the, the blood rushes to your heart and to your legs and your muscles and you run. You run like hell, hey? 
So you're trying to, try to escape this negative feeling, this negative emotion. And what you need to solve the problem is not just to be able to run away from it, because you can run away from it in the short term, but it's still in your brain. There's still that experience. It's a negative experience. And what you want to do, you want to change that experience. And the only way you can get that out of your brain so it becomes a positive uh, experience and a positive emotion is to bloody well do something about it. And that's what giving hope is about. And that's what small charities do. That's what large charities do. That's what all for-purpose organisations do. So think about what the trigger was to establish your organisation. Sometimes I tell the story of Bill Gates, but there's there's, a, there's so many of them. So think of um, Fight MND, which started off as Fight MND Foundation, which has now got the tagline of uh, Fight MND. And that was all about the lived experience of one man, Neil Danaher. The really interesting thing is that MND has a really small incidence in the population. I mean, by comparison with, with cancer or heart or kidney and those sorts of things, you know, it's really minuscule. Yet, from going from an organisation with a 350 million turnover, they've in the last five years, they've raised well in excess of $60 million. And that's been all off the back of a man with lived experience who is dying who has a vision to give hope so that others will not have the same lived experience that he has. And it's so powerful. And so when people see Neil, they say, Christ, he's trying to make a difference. He's trying to give hope. Um, I can really relate to that per personally. And so that personal connection is what's so powerful. But he's demonstrating in his lived experience why giving hope matters. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's it's so profound, that whole concept around the flight and fight response and then how you can transform a negative opportunity or negative experience, sorry, into a positive one by rather than being scared about it, although you probably still have that fear and, and not speaking for Neil himself but other people in similar situations, it's not that the fear disappears it's that you add that element of hope, which then brings a positive opportunity to that experience. It's, it's, it is so. Yeah, the, the really interesting thing is, Bianca, it doesn't matter what the size of the organisation is. Yeah. What, what, whatever your, your cause is, you need to tap into that. So with um, Olivia, that started off with Olivia saying something really simple and profound. We were doing these direct mail letters and I, I sent her the copy for, you know, so she would approve because it was using her name. And she read the letter and she said, Peter, that's, that's, not, that's not why I'm doing this. That's wrong. She said, when I had my cancer experience, I felt alone and scared. Mm. That really resonated because, because there was no wellness. She felt alone, this is Olivia Newton-John, who clearly isn't alone, mm. feeling alone and scared because they were treating her physically, but they weren't treating her, her emotional feelings. They weren't treating her feelings. And she, she constantly said, you know, feeling good is helpful in cure. So Olivia really um, had several iterations of, of cancer and arguably, just like Neil Danaher as well, they probably lived longer because they have that, 
that hope and because their feelings have been, you know, in, in, inspired because they're able to share that with other people. So it's so important founding. So just find out what that what that sort of emotional tag is. For Olivia, it was, I feel alone and scared. So any charity, any size, first of all, needs to identify that so you can relate to your donors in a really personal way. Yeah, it's about that connection, isn't it, to when you're talking to your donors in whatever capacity you're talking to them, about really bringing it home and making it relevant to them. The the vitamin D example is a really interesting one because, like you said, it is a small portion of the community that that have personal experience with MND or would even know someone personally that has had uh, lived experience with MND because it is reasonably rare, um, even though it's quite devastating. But the amount of support that has been garnered through that organisation because of people's ability to tap into or the organisation's ability to tap into that exact thing that you're talking about, it is it is really interesting. And I, I think there's a lot said that in smaller organisations they can definitely be doing these same things as well because it's all about that basic human emotion around wanting to have hope in something and wanting to be connected to something and have that sense of belonging I think is really important too. Um, at the heart of your book you also address six fundraisers dilemmas that you discovered when you were studying three large organisations that were the case studies for your book and interestingly, as someone who obviously I hear quite regularly from our members at the Small Nonprofit Alliance, I think some of those dilemmas are, are faced by people working in smaller organisations too. And as we know, many small organisations, the fundraiser is often the founder or the CEO or or potentially one of two or three people working together. So, so they really have their work cut out for them. Two of the dilemmas in particular I think are really common in small charities and and things that they face, challenges that they face regularly, and that is the cost ratio dilemma and the tied funding dilemma. Can you tell us a little bit about those and and also think about them in the context of the small organisations? Yeah, I was sort of reflecting on this a bit for small organisations and I went through the six fundraisers dilemmas again which by the way have actually been in existence all my fundraising career but it was just being able to articulate them from the experience of writing the book yeah the only one of those six that maybe isn't as relevant to a small organization as others is the the last one number six and appropriately it is last on the list which is the pecking order dilemma and that's about structure within an organization but even that can can play out yeah. in a small way but all the others are relevant and um sort of number two on the list is this uh, cost ratio dilemma that all fundraisers know about all experience doesn't matter what the size of the organization so when I was writing the book, I deliberately made a decision to write it with a guy from the for-profit world. And so we had these constant debates and argument. Of, you know, he was saying, oh, it's fantastic in the for-purpose for, uh, <clears throat> world. I mean, you're really doing stuff that's really exciting. And I bet, bet you attract really good people to your organisation. It must be fantastic working in a for-purpose organisation. And I said, mate, have you ever worked in a full-purpose organisation that's as bureaucratic and poorly structured and organised as any, anything else you've ever worked in? 
Um, so we had all these cursive assumptions about what each of us does. And so this one notion of the cost ratio dilemma came up because he said, per, you know, in the for-profit world, if you're making 20% profit, that's absolutely awesome. Shareholders, you know, the board, everyone is, is cheering and dancing. But for some weird reason in our for-purpose world, if we if if we have a cost ratio of 80-20 with only, you know, it would be seen as is shocking, it's horrendous. It would probably get sacked. So isn't it curious that people on boards who come from the for-profit world sit down and they say, oh, cost ratio. No, you can't you can't spend more than twenty or thirty percent cent you know in the in the dollar. That's that's shocking because everyone will think that this is a complete waste of time and totally unprofitable. These are the very same people who will go back to work in the for profit world and accept a ratio that's the complete opposite of that. Mm. So it's a total nonsense. The other thing about cost ratio is that it's always just a point in time, isn't it? So when you're starting out as an organisation, and again, it doesn't matter what size of organisation you're starting out as, the cost when you're starting is going to be, you know, uh, much larger. It's just like a business. When you start up a business, the cost, the investment you need before you even start getting return on that investment is longer and the business model is to increasingly improve that return on investment over time. It's exactly the same in fundraising. It's exactly the same in doing fundraising budgets. So this is where it comes back to be needing to be smart in a for-purpose organisation and start off by asking the simple question, what is the most, to start, what's the most cost-effective form of fundraising? And it is in major gifts. The second most cost-effective <clears throat> way to fundraising is bequest. The difficulty with bequest is the lead time, mm. okay? So if you're an organisation that's been going for you know, a long time, then investment in bequest makes sense. But it has to be supported by a whole bunch of other programs. That's not true for major gifts. Major gifts, you can get a quick return on investment if you do it well. And it doesn't matter what the size of the organisation is. So all the metrics, all the stuff around cost ratio is just a measure in, in budget at the point of time. And you need to see that you have to invest in fundraising and you need to invest in all types of fundraising, ultimately, mm. as you grow as an organisation. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I think having that balance of um, of the activities that you do in fundraising so you, so you can allow time to invest in things like bequest because it does have that lead time. So obviously you need to be doing something else. Having a bit of a mixture of things is a really um, good way to re, re, um, reduce that risk, I guess, around, you know, not having a diversified fundraising mix because that's really, really important, something that we talk about often as well. And what about um, the tide funding dilemma? That's I find that one an interesting one as well and, um, you know, especially for smaller organisations, if they are doing a lot of grant writing and trying to get funding through trusts and foundations, that, that can be a challenge because, as we know, a lot of philanthropic organisations like that want to tie their funding to a project or something like that. So how do you think that tied funding dilemma plays out a little bit? Well, the interesting thing about the tied fundraising dilemma 
it never applies to um, funding, fundraising salaries and stuff. Yep. So that's an interesting calculation as well in terms of the cost ratio development. Even the cost ratios, I know I'm jump, jumping back, but it, it, it is relevant. Even the, even the cost ratio dilemma is an interesting one because how do you measure that? And usually you measure it because of the cost of fundraising being seen as let, let's say if it's uh, let's say if it's direct mail, so it's cost of the mail, it's cost of the, the, the copywriter, cost of posting it out, da 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 da. It's hardly ever the cost of the fundraiser included, and you can argue that if you would have a look at all of the costs for those that type of fundraising, you're really lucky to come out breaking even. Mm. Unless you have a, a longer-term vision, that's not the case for major gifts. But the thing about tied fundraising that's the real problem is that there's this assumption that if a donor is giving for a particular purpose, a particular bit of equipment, a particular program, that that program has a cost and what they're donating to is exactly the same cost as that bit of equipment or servicing the equipment or the bit of bit of research or the particular program, so on and so on. The really curious thing is under tax law, that would be seen as a benefit, mm. okay, if you're applying some form of donor recognition. Because under the tax law, the only people who really get can apply <clears throat> tax deductibility is the organisation. The donor, the donor doesn't. The donor gets a tax break, break by donating to the organisation, not by donating to a to purchase a particular bit of equipment. Yeah. Mm. So mm. the recognition is is quite quite different to that. So I think the answer the answer is that again, a lot of boards on for purpose organisations think like that too from their experience, and they mm. don't apply it. You think of it too, government grants is a form of tied fundraising. So for overseas aid organisations and DFAT, they get grants and they're grants done on the basis of doing particular things that is applied to that grant. And often that that is grants that has a political purpose for, for the government because they need to be working in overseas agencies. Mm. The great thing about non-government grants and about philanthropy is you can apply it to purposes that government won't fund. And so you can have a really frank conversation with the donor to say, what we need to do in order to deliver on our mission is we need X dollars of which these dollars will go to purchase this bit of equipment or to do this, this program. We also have recurrent costs that we need to fund, and we also need to fund our staff, our CEO, our manager, our part-time fundraiser. There are some trust and foundations who will now fund for this form of capacity building because they do understand that that's essential, and particularly for a smaller charity that doesn't receive government grants, and so therefore they're going to be applying a lot more to trust and foundations, that's important. But having a basic understanding of that, so my advice is always really be transparent with your donors and if they think their, their donation really is being tied to something, have a conversation with them 
about actually it's for these broader purposes just keep talking about the outcomes and how it makes a difference in the lives of the people that you're caring for that you're the organization that is in this niche market that's able to deliver it that no one else is or no one else in the way that you're doing it and just get them to buy into that mm-hmm. rather than buy into that particular product it actually fits into another one of the dilemmas, which is the product versus misery versus hope dilemma. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little further about that? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, sort of, it sort of wraps up a couple of things we've been talking about. So it was an interesting issue with um, Oxfam. They had a product with a Christmas card where they're basically selling goats. Mm. And the idea was, you know, goats are really important for some, you know, villages and uh, and to- totally get why, you know, goats are important. And so donors actually thought that if they gave, you know, <clears throat> I think it was, you know, 40 bucks or something and they were buying a goat for a village, so they thought, oh, why don't I buy them, you know, 20 goats? And suddenly they got all these people love this idea of this uh, sort of product thing, and it ties into this tide fundraising dilemma too, if you think about it. So, And suddenly they got all this money in to buy goats. Everyone in the organisation, what's, what's this with all these bloody goats? You know, what are we going to do? Actually, all these goats don't deliver on the mission and the full purpose. They only deliver on a really part of it. So fundraisers, because this ties into the crowded market dilemma, because they're competing with others, they have to have the product dilemma which fits into the tide fundraising dilemma. It's highlighted by having a whole bunch of goats. You know, delivering goats is not the mission of Oxfam, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. It's so interesting, isn't it, the way that yeah, I think that crowded market thing because there is that competition and it's a, you know, it's a word that people don't use often in the all-purpose space because everyone's too scared to use the word competition. But if we're really honest about everything, there is competition there. It's not a finite. I don't think there's a finite amount of funding out there because I think if you inspire and, um, mm. you know, inspire a donor enough, they they can probably always find some money or, or you could find a person that's not currently giving to an organisation because you connect with them and and they really resonate with what you're doing. But, but the idea of that there is you know, that it's there's no competition is kind of it's a little bit silly, I think, because it's very clear that there's competition because if you're not doing something and asking as an organisation um, your donor base or your community to support you or you're not doing it well, someone else is and someone else will get, will will inspire that person, will give them the opportunity to have that hopefulness with with another organization so so it's interesting yeah the goat one is interesting and I think it's I think it's very clever from a marketing perspective but it moves strongly away from what is at the heart of what we're doing and like you said Oxfam's mission is not to provide yeah, it moves, moves the way away from why people give and coming coming back to you know giving hope you know goats gives hope for a very limited extent. It's not why why people give. Mm. And that crowded market dilemma plays in, you know, really clearly to the product versus misery versus hope dilemma. 
because what what has happened a, a lot, particularly in the past, I remember when World Vision started out in Australia, they were showing they had this huge budget from the US that they were spending on you know TV advertising, and they were showing these you know shocking scenes of children in really miserable. Um, the sort of thing we wouldn't do today because it's totally disrespectful. Um, but it's about, you know, this, this notion of misery, how you represent that um, and how you get that shock. So this is that fight and flight pattern coming again. But if you think of someone like Neil Danaher, there's no, no shocking imagery. It's just his life experience that's, that's there. So when you get trapped into fundraising via product, you tend to attach misery to it, and that's the antithesis of really giving hope. You mm. must, must be clear about outcomes, in other the positives rather than the, the negatives. Yeah, yeah, it's so true because if you get stuck in the misery side of it, then people think they can't do anything. They, they, they feel like they've got no, you know, like their $10 or their $10,000 is not going to make a difference because you don't um, inspire them with that um, aspect of hope and they have something to believe in because at the end of the day we really need to connect with our donors and make sure that they understand that they can make a difference at whatever level, whatever level suits them, at whatever level they've got capacity to give, that they can make a difference and have create change in the world and that create that social impact that they are really passionate about and they're just doing it through that vehicle of fundraising with the organisation. Yeah, so and there's a difference between, you know, the misery image and and uh, that emotional truth, making that connection like I am alone and scared, et cetera, which is different from imagery, which is disrespectful and and, uh, and a negative thing. And it's, been, it's about being really you know, clear about that in your messaging to mm. your donors. Yeah, because you do need a balance. There's, you can't really tell the story all happy, happy sunshine and lollipops because that's no. actually, if there's no problem, then there's no need for the work that you do. So you do need to talk about the problem. But, yeah, it's, um, yeah. it's So, so how it often plays out, Bianca, is that when organisations are requiring donors, okay, there's more of that, that negative message, this is a problem, has to be dealt, dealt with, if you like, in that fight and flight pattern. But once they're required, what you need to do is demonstrate hope. You need to demonstrate the outcome so the messaging actually changes. And that's why there's a little difference between donor acquisition and donor cultivation and donor stewardship. Mm. The more you move towards stewardship, the more it's about hope. Mm. Yeah, so true, so true. That's so. The next question, or the next thing I wanted to talk about, I think really bounces on nicely from that donor stewardship because I'm sure that's what you're gonna. I'm sure that's how you're gonna talk to this next one. But um, another concept outside of your dilemmas that we've just touched on that you mentioned in the book is the concept of donor lifetime value. So for anyone that's done sort of some really simple, basic fundraising. Um, courses or anything like that that's a term that they probably are aware of but um, I find obviously that concept of donor lifetime value really integral to having a successful fundraising program and and being willing to invest in a successful fundraising or invest in you know what's needed to create a successful fundraising um, program but for some of our listeners and some people working in smaller charities that don't have 
a lot of that understanding, you know, they they don't necessarily have the fundraising expertise or the fundraising experience. What would you say is the simplest way to explain this concept of donor lifetime value and why it's so important, um, especially for smaller charities? So as soon as I, as I mentioned that to the co-author of uh, Giving Hope, Robinson Rowe, from the for-profit world, he said, hey, you mean customer lifetime value, don't you? So I used to have an Apple Watch. I only buy Apple stuff, you see. And so Apple, so the whole notion of customer lifetime value is to get brand loyalty. And the only way you get brand loyalty is by excellence in your your product and in between sales transactions you're communicating with them and so i get all this cool stuff from from apple all that kind of stuff and i think i'm pretty cool because i'm with apple eh? all that kind of stuff because it lives up to its brand promise and keeps me informed it gives me special offers it keeps communicating with me and in the same sort of way um donor you know lifetime value is exactly the same it comes mm. back to you know so at the point of which you're acquiring a donor the first time, it becomes, it's not a transaction, okay? So you're moving from a transaction to a relationship. Mm. So a, a great uh, international fundraiser, Ken Burnett, wrote a book which is uh, called Relationship Fundraising. And have a guess what? He took that from another book called Relationship Marketing. Again, the same principles apply. And it's basically being respectful to the customer, being respectful to the donor, bringing them on a journey, a journey that can go to life. And I would argue that because you have this really, instead of just wanting to feel cool and being brand aligned, what I am most passionate about personally in the charities that I support, that emotional connection is far deeper than my connection to wearing an Apple Watch. So when I'm supporting the work with the Indigenous communities for Outback Spirit Foundation, that's far more meaning to me personally mm. than my bloody Apple Watch. So I think, you know, for-purpose organisations have the ability to really connect and to share share that, you know, the story of the people that, that they're benefiting and how I as a donor am part of that because I donate, but you need to tell me why my donation is making a difference and you need to invest in that too. So the, the notion of lifetime value is an equation which Professor Adrian Sargent dictate from the for-profit world and apply to the for-purpose world. And in that he, <clears throat> he talks about the need to invest in good donor stewardship over the journey to increase donor lifetime value. Mm. Yes. I think what when you started talking about, you know, you, you are a loyal Apple person and you sort of said, because I feel cool, I think I know you were kind of saying that a little tongue-in-cheek and, and I know you quite well, Peter, and I do think you're quite cool. But I think <laughs> I, I think what's key in what you said is about how it makes you feel. I think that is so much part of that whole donor stewardship piece as well. It's about, you know, and I remember when I was in advertising a very long time ago, one of the things, you know, it's for some brands, luxury brands in particular, they're never using their advertising to sell a product. They're always using their advertising to reaffirm the person that's already paid the money and bought the, you know, made the decision and, and, and bought the product. 
So, you know, so it's all about making sure people are feeling good about what they have just done in terms of making a donation or what they're about to do in terms of making a donation and, and feeling, making sure they feel valued, making sure they feel connected. So I think that that whole aspect of making, like thinking about how in that stewardship journey or how in our relationships with our supporters and our donors we are making them feel, if that's at the heart of what we're doing, we're really got a best chance of improving that donor lifetime value. That makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. Um, we've been chatting for a long time, Peter, and, and as I just said, um, we uh, know each other quite well and probably could chat all day. Um, but to wrap up, I guess, for any of our listeners we um, who are interested in grabbing a copy of your book, Giving Hope, we will put the um, link for that in our episode notes and I'll also find Peter because I've got your other book I was just looking on my bookshelf the key to fundraising success the other one um I will see if that is that still in print that one can people if I, is there somewhere we can connect people to that one in particular as well no I, I tried to find it a few years back and I I couldn't uh, it, right. look let's let's just say it wasn't on the bestseller list well, I've read that one and I do think it is quite good. Um, but anyway, if uh, if someone really interested in that one, um, you know, just get in touch with us at the Small Nonprofit Alliance and I can maybe give you a summary version of Bianca's summary notes of that one. Um, but otherwise, we'll put the Giving Hope one um, link to that in our episode notes and so people can find it online if they want to grab a copy. Those fundraising dilemmas and all the aspects there, like we said, even though it is sort of framed around larger organisations, they're really valuable lessons, I think, for smaller for smaller charities indeed. Um, and just to wrap up, Peter, can you offer any last advice for those people listening today working in small charities and how giving hope might help their quest for success? Yeah, it, it's a, it's actually a big question <laughs> in, in so, so many ways. I think always I like, like trying to keep it simple. So I suppose of the things I have said today in, in the chat that you've drawn out so well, Bianca, um, and just sort of reflecting, I think that notion of, you know, what's unique in terms of your emotional truth as an organisation, what's that trigger that donors are going to relate to? And so in all your communications, stay true to that and keep reminding people of it. So don't get trapped by, you know, selling products. And even in events you do, make see, see a way in which you can bring that that truth of what you do, which is a powerful emotional truth that people will relate to personally from the left side of their brain, not the right side of their brain. It's mm. great advice to finish on. Uh, Peter, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And I know our listeners will get a huge amount of education and information from your wealth of experience. So thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Been a pleasure. Thanks, Bianca. Thank you.